you can turn in your Bibles to Exodus in chapter 19. The church Bibles at the back. The text comes from Exodus 19. I'll be reading the first six verses as we continue moving our way through this wonderful, majestic second book of Moses. We come finally to the foot of Mount Sinai. Let's pray together before we read the Word of God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the privilege of having your words, your revelation in our hands. It tells us of Jesus. Holy Spirit, help me to speak well of him. In his name we pray. Amen. So follow along with me in Exodus 19. On the third new moon, after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Exodus, the book of Exodus, is about the God who makes himself known. Exodus is about God who reveals himself to Moses, to Pharaoh, to the Egyptians, and now since the crossing of the Red Sea, he's now primarily making himself known to the Israelites. But the book of Exodus is not only the story of who God is. It's my favourite book, if you like, on the book of Exodus, the God who makes himself known. But it's also the story of who we are. Who we are as the people of God and how we should conduct ourselves, therefore, as the people of God. And Exodus 19 is a key pivotal chapter in Exodus. Exodus 19 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Now, I know you're used to me saying that every week, but that really, I think it is an important pivotal chapter, and it is an, one of the most important chapters in the Bible. Because we often think of Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments, as a high point, and it is high point spiritually and literally. It is literally a high point. I've climbed up to the top of Mount Sinai um, myself some 25 years ago, one of the most wonderful experiences I've ever had. Can't go there now, but I went before I was unable to go. Anyway, but chapter 19 is just as important. Some scholars argue that verses 4, 5, and 6, which I just read, are not only the heart of the book of Exodus, but the heart of the entire Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, if not the heartbeat of the entire Old Testament. Because Exodus 19 is this important transition chapter. And it's a transition chapter in three ways, at least. It's a transition from movement to staying put. And after getting to the other side of the Red Sea, they've been camping in different places, now they're going to settle for some weeks at Mount Sinai. The second transition in chapter 19 is from grace 
to law. Now, I hesitate to put it that way because our hearts, and some people say, well, they're, they're polar opposites. They're polar opposites. But what I'm saying is um, we're transitioning from the act of deliverance to instruction in discipleship. And we'll see more of that as we go through. We're transitioning from the act of deliverance to the instruction of discipleship. And the third transition in Exodus 19 is an emphasis from who God is to who we are. It's a transition from who God is to who we are. So this begins the so what part of the book, or the now what of the book of Exodus. Because if you do not really know God, if that knowledge of God does not affect what you know about yourself, if it doesn't affect the way you live, you're not following that God. If you do not really know God, if that knowledge of God does not affect what you know about yourself and who you are in following that God. A.W. Tozer said, and I love this word, plain horse sense should tell us that anything that makes no change in the man who professes it makes no difference to God either. Plain horse sense. It's not about meriting a certain number of holiness points to earn favour. The Israelites are already saved. They're already delivered. But what difference does it make if you do not then show yourself to be a saved people? Many people claim to be Christian, but what difference does it make if you don't show yourself to be a changed people, a transformed people, a saved people? Three things from our, the verses in our short time this morning. Um, our identity as God's people, our command as God's people, and our purpose as God's people. Verses 4, 5 and 6. So let's look at our identity in verse Four, our identity as a redeemed people. I love how verse four begins. You read these verses, you read your Bible, you read them quickly. Sometimes we need to slow down and we need to get some of the effective element of the text. Verse four, you yourselves, and there's an emphasis, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. He is reminding them of who they are as redeemed people. Moses, I want you to tell the people, do not forget what you saw. You have seen it. You were there. With your own eyes, you saw me work. You saw me crush the Egyptians. Do you not remember seeing that? You saw the Red Sea part. We saw the Red Sea part. You saw with your own eyes how I delivered you. We need to be reminded, you need to be reminded of how great our salvation is. Of what you've already seen. What you've already seen. If you're in Christ, you're a miracle. The wonder of the deliverance is the people of God. Some of you may be new to the Christian faith. Some of you may not even be a Christian this, at all this morning. And I'm so glad that you're here, learning and listening. We have many people who have been walking with the Lord for many years. And we can forget what we have seen. It took the Israelites three days to forget. 
And can you think back, can you think back and think back of times of great deliverance, of great deliverance from the Lord? Think about how many times we pray that somebody would be kept safe, somebody would have travel in mercies, and they are. You think about the times you've prayed for someone going to surgery, and it's been okay. We pray for our children when they go to school. We pray for our children when they go to university. And the Lord answers prayers, doesn't he? The Lord answers prayers, but we forget. We pray, and then I think we assume that we did it ourselves. We didn't need God to come in. Sometimes he doesn't answer as we want him to, or as as we would ask. But so many times he always gives us what we need. But many times he gives us what we ask for. So can you think of what you have been delivered from? Not just those prayers for earthly peace and security, but think of the times that you have known the Lord's grace. Those times, can you think back to those times in the past when, the, when your conscience stung you? When you had that sting of conscience? When you came before the Lord so aware of your sinfulness? Maybe even this week, you've been thinking of a sinful choice that no one knows about. Because you can come to church, you can get dressed up for an hour and 15 minutes, you can shred your face on Sunday morning shaving like I just did this morning, hope you wouldn't bleed. And no one knows what's going on really. You look ever so good for an hour and 15 minutes. But no one has any idea of the double life you're living. And you don't have to be young to live a double life. You can be ever so religious. But you can, but you, but you can be sinning at home in the way you treat your spouse. God is not mocked. You will have to give an account. And you feel a profound sense of regret and remorse, and maybe even repentance for it. Or maybe you look back into when you were in university, and with shame you think of some of the things that you did. You cringe when you think about what you've done. And then God comes to you with his amazing grace. And God says, that is not who you are. That is not who you are. Sin does not define us as Christians. You're not defined by sin. You are not who you are. We're not defined by our sin. We're defined by his amazing grace. I'm only a sinner saved by grace. I'm only a sinner Saved by grace. This is my story. To God be the glory. I'm only a sinner. Saved by grace. That's my identity. God says I crushed the Egyptians. I redeemed you. I saved you. So remember Christian. Remember this morning. The times in your life. When you read the word. And it, do, you remember, do you remember the times when it just. Was so alive to you. Where you were gripped by it. When you met God in the scriptures, when you heard the voice of Jesus through the preaching of the word, do you remember that? God says to you this morning, you have seen what I can do. You have seen what I can do. I bore you on eagle's wings, is what he told the Israelites. In other, in other words, they and we 
were passive in our deliverance. They didn't get together and shoveled, up, shoveled away across the Red Sea. They wouldn't even, it wouldn't, wouldn't even dawned on them, let alone it would have been like a thankless task anyway. They didn't build a dam. God parted the water and they saw it. I bore you on eagles' wings. It will, it will become familiar imagery to speak of the Lord's sovereign initiative in saving his people. I love that image, by the way, that he bore us on eagles' wings. That's how he saved you. He bore you on eagles' wings. Think of the scene uh, from the books, if you've read them, or the film, if you've seen it, The Lord of the Rings. Um, one of my f- favourite series of books. I had to watch it many times because our kids watched it, but I had to watch it probably more times than I wanted to. But at how many times, just at the right moment, when Gal- Gandalf the wizard is on the tower and the eagles come, or Sam and Frodo are on the ma- uh, throes of Mount Doom and Mordor, and the eagles come. You do wonder, though, if the eagles were there, why they had to walk, but never mind. Why didn't they just jump on the eagles' backs? But there's a wonderful imagery. I bore you on eagles' wings. I bore you on eagles' wings. Salvation is of the Lord. Not because we are stunning and brave, but because we are beloved. Because we are loved. They are redeemed. God made a promise to Moses in Exodus 3, verse 12. He said, I'll be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you when you brought the people out of Egypt. You shall serve God on this mountain. That's what Yahweh promised on the far side of Midian, which turned out to be this very spot at Horeb, Sinai, the mountain of God. And Yahweh brought them to the mountain. He brought them to himself. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians how I bore you on eagle's wings and I brought you to myself. Not a fell, not a mountain. We call them fells up here, everyone else calls them mountains. But to himself, to himself. And I've said it before and I'll say it again. Remember when Moses went into Pharaoh, what did he say? Charlton Heston said in the film The Ten Commandments, Let my people go. But that wasn't the end of the sentence that was recorded in the Bible. Let my people go that they may serve me. Let my people go that they may go into the wilderness and they may worship. Freedom is not freedom to do as we will. Freedom is not freedom for freedom's sake. Freedom is freedom to serve the living God. It was a freedom that would lead them to the living God. That's why verse 4 says, how I bore your eagle's wings, doesn't stop there, and brought you to myself. We're not just saved from something, my dear friend. We're not just saved, we are saved for someone. We're not just saved from something, we are saved for someone. So many Christians talk about laws and commands and obedience as if they're alien, as if they're, diff- you know, as if they're somehow distractions to the life of freedom. No, no, no. I've been saved by grace. How dare you tell me what I should do? 
How dare you tell me what I should do? Well, if you know this church at all, we're under the doctrines of grace. We emphasise grace with all our hearts. But grace has not only saved you from, it has saved you for. You were redeemed by God. You were redeemed through God. You were redeemed for God. To bring you to himself, we have a new identity as Christians, our identity is in him. Secondly, our command, verse 5. Now therefore, if you'll indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now don't be thrown off by the if in verse 5. This is the language of covenant. It's the first time we have this precise language of keeping my covenant. In the middle of verse 5, keep my covenant. And we have a shortened introductory version of the Mosaic Covenant, which will unfold in the chapters to come. The Mosaic Covenant modelled in some sense, which is common amongst in Near Eastern covenants. The contents were different, but there's a structure to the covenants that scholars have uncovered over the years. And the covenant would, would begin with a preamble, which is, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt. That's the beginning. And then there would be stipulations. Here is what you should do, is I am the Lord and you are my people. And then there's followed by blessings and curses, which is what we see in the Mosaic Covenant. But we have the introduction in verse 5. If you will, now therefore, if you will obey, obey my voice and keep my covenant, so I have commands for you as my covenant people. But the word I want you to focus on this morning and take away with you is not the if, but the therefore. Not the if, but the therefore. Because there is always a therefore in the Christian life. There always is. When Jesus, you know, when, when, you know, when Jesus healed people who were the woman taken in adultery and others, what did he say? Go and sin no more. There was a, there's a therefore. There's a therefore in the Christian life. We see it in Ephesians 4 verse 1. I, therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling in which you've been called. We see it most famously in Romans 12. And after all those great chapters of justification and adoption and glorification and election and predestination, Subjects that we love and are under, Romans 12 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Some Christians think that you can be a Christian without therefore. And when Christians start talking about therefore, they throw the L word at me. Not loser, as my kids go like this, but no. Um, they always say, loser, you know, but no. It's legalist. Legalist. People throw that word, legalist. Now, it's true that there are real legalists. Um, what's the word? What, yeah, legalistic antiquarians, if you like, who, who insist on man-made rules and legislation in order to be pleasing to God. Now, that is... I'll add the word antiquarian legalist as opposed to legalist. Legalistic antiquarians, but that's not who we're talking about. And to be honest, while there might be some crusty old you know, antiquarians roving around, that's not the danger for most people today. 
And certainly not people my age and younger. Do you see how I, how I snuck that in? You know, snuck that in, my age and younger. You know, but you know what most people mean by, by legalists? You know what most, most people mean by legalists? Somebody who takes the Bible more seriously than me. Somebody who takes holiness more seriously than me. So we throw the legalist work out. And that's normally what is meant by the accusation. You're just a legalist. No, is it you take the Bible more seriously than me? Because therefore is an essential, necessary word in our Christian vocabulary. Deliverance, therefore, discipleship. Deliverance, therefore, discipleship. We think of law leading to gospel, which is true theologically. The second use of the law shows us our sin and our need of a saviour. The second use of the law shows us that we're far from God and it leads us to the cross. And we know that we need the good news of salvation. Law leads us to gospel. But in a biblical historical sense, gospel leads to law. The gospel of salvation from Pharaoh, from Egypt through the Red Sea, divine sovereign deliverance leads to Sinai, where a law is given for a delivered people. Not to save them, but the law is given, therefore, this is how you should then live. Is it possible that even some of you have never moved on to the therefore of the Christian life? You're happy to say, I've given my life to Christ. I prayed the prayer, I raised my hand, I became a Christian. And I go to church if I can. I try to be a good person, and that is it. And there's never been a therefore. You're redeemed, you're saved. Therefore, what does it mean? What difference does it make if I'm a Christian? Therefore, what does it look like? if the amazing grace of God has captured your heart. Therefore, there will be an evidence in your life. There will be an evidence of amazing grace flowing through you. That's why we do that in a, some way in the worship service. It's not original to us. It's been around for hundreds of years. There's praise. There's renewal. There's proclamation. There's a response. There's praise. We encounter God. There's a renewal, a sense of our confessing our sin in light of this God. Then there is the proclamation of the word where we see Jesus in the word. And the time of response, we sing and we go out to serve. It's a basic order of a worship service. It's a picture in miniature of the gospel. So this response must always be part of the gospel when we preach it. Therefore, therefore. So our command, which we will see filled out in the chapters ahead, this command. But here we have this word, therefore, obey my voice and keep my covenant. God is giving commands to his people. And of course, though, we sometimes think of it as this, it's not really loving of God to do this. Any of us here who are parents, Realise how essential this is if you love your kids. If you think about how much you love your children, you sacrifice for your children, don't you? You worry about your children. If they're unwell, 
It keeps you awake. I got a son in America nine months ago. I couldn't, you know, I just thought I would contact him and he, he didn't answer his phone for six hours. I was, I was, I was a mess here in Keswick. I was a real mess at three o'clock in the morning, striding up and down the streets I pace anyway, until he suddenly goes, what's wrong? But we worry about our kids. You'll give your life for your children. You'll give your life for your children. But you'd never think that being a good parent meant that you would raise a kid and just give them to the world. You wouldn't hand them over to Satan. You'd never raise a child never to take responsibility. You'd never teach a child not to, not, not to learn what is required of them. Never what it is meant to be part of the family. Do the chores. If you're a child here this morning, when your dad and mum say, do the, do the dishes or vacuum the floor, you've been a good child. Okay, life first. Your parents can pay me afterwards. But if, you are, if, but if you are a Christian and you love your children, you raise your kids as Christian. You don't raise them as pagans. Fathers, love your boys enough to teach them to be men. Love them enough. Love them enough to teach them to be men. Mothers, love your daughters enough to teach them to be godly women. And being a Christian is countercultural in our world today. Being a Christian is countercultural. And yet, somehow, sometimes we think the kind of father I want in God never expects anything of me. He never asks anything of me. And we know from first hand experience that is not being a good parent. This is where the parenting thing comes in. I, I wasn't just throwing that in there. No, it's not even loving. Any parent seeing his child playing in the middle of the street and a car is coming, is going to shout. It's going to shout. It's going to scream at the top of their voice, get out of the road. And even if everyone looking on says, how shouty, you know, how judgmental. Why are you shaming your children in public? I'm not shaming them. I'm keeping them alive. I hope that you don't let your baby, your, your children bathe with toasters. No one's going to say that, well, wow, what a great parent, so affirming. No, we would say, no, very much in prison. So why would we expect different from God? Why would we expect different from God? Of course God has standards. Of course God has commands. Of course God has rules. Of course God says you're a part of my family. Therefore, I love you too much. Therefore, to be part of God's family means something. There's always a therefore in the Christian life. Our identity, our command, our therefore, and finally our purpose. And the language in 5 and 6 is so beautiful. It is so beautiful. I want you to go from here with this. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We are precious. We are a precious people. The language appears throughout the Pentateuch, a treasured possession, Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. 
out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 14 verse 2. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples on the face of the earth. In Deuteronomy 26 verse 18, the Lord has declared today you're a people for his treasured possession as he promised you and you're to keep all his commandments. So sometimes the order is you're holy and then a treasured possession and sometimes you're a treasured possession in order to be holy. The two things cannot be separated. Election is unto sanctification and sanctification is always rooted in our election. I wonder if you've forgotten that you're precious to God. Have you forgotten that you, you are precious to God? You're a treasured possession. Now, some of us only relate to God as judge. And that is one way that God is described. But if you only relate to God as judge, you're either in or out. I pray the prayer. I believe in Jesus. I am in. I'm going to heaven. But if that's the only way you relate to God... Your relationship with God is impoverished. Just I'm guilty or I'm innocent, I'm innocent, better. I'd rather go to heaven than hell, okay? But if the rest of your life is relationally, relationally inert when it comes to God, because you don't know God as your father. You don't know God as one who can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can be grieved by our sin, the Bible tells us. Conversely, then, we do not know God as the one who delights in our obedience. He delights in our obedience. We don't know him as the one who looks down and says, you are my treasured possession. You are my treasured possession. The world is trying to get at this thing it calls self-esteem which is just a very pale imitation. There is no self-esteem program in the world that can match the creator of the universe looking down on you and saying, you are my treasured possession. You are my treasured possession. Have you ever watched the Olympics? I don't often, I never watched any kind of you know, athletics until the Olympics. Because sometimes I watch it to see the parents. Have you ever seen, you know, you know, I love to see the parents in the, in, in the crowd when the kids sort of like win a race and the, you know, the parents are so nervous, you know, you know, they've got sort of blood pouring off their arms with their bitten great big holes in them. And thinking about how much they love that kid. Thinking about how much they love that kid. And uh, maybe they're thinking of how much they better do well because all the money they spent on this kid. But here they are, they're beaming from ear to ear. This is my treasure. This is my child. And if that person gets a gold medal, you ever see what they do? They bite it between their teeth. I hope that it doesn't, you know, they, they take selfies, they're interviewed in TV. Everyone wants to see their gold medal. An Olympic gold medal, a World Cup winner's medal, a Champion League winner's medal, especially from 2021, are a treasured possession. Yes, the year my team won it. But the recipients will treasure it for the rest of their lives. Some, some clubs don't, have never won it, by the way. But, and, and these athletes will have all sorts of people saying, can I see it? Can I see it? Maybe some of the ladies were here 
Um, it's a long time ago since I did this, but not that I know, I gave it to my wife, of course. When they were engaged, when, you know, when you got engaged, and I, I've often seen how ladies' hands kind of some sort of swing like this, you know what I mean? That are like, oh, it's so heavy, you know, you know, it's so hard to keep up. It's such a big stone, if I knew it, no, no. But of course you want everyone to see, to see it. Not only for what it is, but what it represents, that you're engaged and you're going to get married. God looks down on his people and says, my treasured possession, my treasured possession. We're not only treasured possession, but verse 6, a priestly people. You should be to me a kingdom of priests. The only time this expression occurs in the Old Testament, you can interpret it a number of different ways. If we take it in context, it is explained as a holy nation. The two phrases, while not identical, are underlying that Israel is set apart. To be a kingdom of priests means you have access, you have privilege, you have a unique relationship with God. Many times I've had people say to me in Vienna and here, Pete, Pastor, can you pray for me? I'm happy to do that. Of course I am, but I don't have God on speed dial. I don't have him on WhatsApp, if I can get through in a special way. The, the only special way to get through to God is through his son. The only special way to get through to God is through his son. So we're a kingdom of priests, we have access. The priests also represented the people to God by prayers and offering. They represented God to the people by making atonement. So that's what the priests did. They represented the people to God by prayers and offerings. They represented God to the people by making atonement. So we are a people, in other words, with a special closeness to God, with a special calling from God. But think of what it means to be a kingdom of priests, just for a couple of seconds. Some of you may come from church backgrounds, and I hope I don't offend anybody, where the minister was called a priest. I'm not a priest. I'm not a priest. I'm a pastor, a minister, which means shepherd, caretaker, if you like, minister, servant, not priest. One, because Jesus is the priest who made atonement for our sin. Not me, nor any other pastor in the world. And secondly, because all of us are kingdom of priests, which means that we all offer intercession as a priest would. We all. We all. The only thing that we need is the blood of the Lamb. It means that we make invitation as a priest would. It means that we have imitation as a priest would. We set an example for others. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. That's what it means to be a kingdom of priests. We're a holy nation. We're a precious people. We're a priestly people. We are a peculiar people. Do you like that? I like to be peculiar. We're a kingdom of priests, we're a holy nation, and the idea permeates the Mosaic Covenant. Like Israel, we are to be distinct, we are to be unique, we're set apart, we are different to the world. One commentator said that holiness is a prospect and a present possession. God says to us, this is who you are, now be yourself. Not to be yourself in your DNA, not as a fallen creature. Not be yourself as the world defines it. But be yourself, my dear friend, be yourself as a treasured possession. Would you do that?
Be yourself as a treasured possession, a kingdom of priests, a redeemed person, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. It's not easy to think differently, to act differently, behave differently, believe differently. It is relatively comfortable if most of our lives are spent with each other. And it is good that we spend time together. But it's difficult to be a cognitive minority and to have the whole world thinking one way. And it's not that the worldliness comes to us by means of syllogism or fine arguments. It comes to us in the air we breathe. David Wells said in his book, worldliness is what makes sin seem normal and righteousness look strange. What a definition of our world today. Sin looks normal and righteousness looks strange. If you seek to follow the Lord, the God of the Bible, you're <coughs> you'll, you will be strange. That's the air we breathe. That's the air we breathe. So it sounds good to say I'm a holy nation until you realise to be holy means set apart. And you're not like everyone else. So you're going to have times when you say, I'm not going to go and watch that film. Everyone else is watching it, I'm not going to go. And all of your friends will go, and you'll be the only one who doesn't. And there'll be times when, when because we get sanitised to sin, and we can watch stuff which is just not so-called normal today, which, which our parents would have turned blue in the face. So we become sanitised to sin. There'll be times when somebody's watching something on the TV or showing you something on a YouTube and you say, I don't think you should be watching that. It's what it means to be a holy people. We're called to be different. It, do you think it was easy for Israel? Everyone worshipped multiple gods. They worshipped God. Everyone else had gods they could see. Their God was invisible. They were a nomad people, a recently enslaved people, a peculiar people who had the audacity to think their God was the God of the universe and he'd chosen them to be his treasured possession. 1 Peter says, You're a chosen race, the royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. We can point to so many things that are dark, discouragingly dark in the world, but we have, and we have reason to be discouraged. But do you see... Do you see what a wonderful opportunity we have? Because light shines brightly in darkness. Light shines most brightly in darkness. You see light more vividly when it is dark. So perhaps all the things that are happening in our world, our culture, will prove to be the Lord's grace to us. Have you ever thought about that? Winnowing out and whittling down cultural Christianity, nominal Christianity, and in the midst of a dark world, we'll have the opportunity to show ourselves as set apart. We have an amazing opportunity that has not existed for decades or centuries. And people are watching. People watch Christians. Sometimes I think people are just watching for the next pastor to fall. I, it's not an easy thing to be a pastor when you, when, when you think about the pressure that there is to watch the Knicks pass the fall. And there is sin. There is sin and we, should, and we should reject that. But until we say something, not, not, you know, not, not, not anything aggressive, but just say something that the Word says, 
And then people shriek, you're a bigot. People are watching. But maybe they'll see something different in the way that we love, in, the, in our ethics, in our generosity. Different in the way we raise our children. Different in the way we walk in here. We're not trying to create a culture that impresses the world, that people will come in and say, I really like that. We're trying to create, by the grace of God, a counterculture so different to the world that people would walk in and say, I've never seen anyone like this before. It's a doxological evangelism. I need to know this God, that these people really love him. They're really into God. And they really sing like they believe what they're singing. Do you sing what you believe? I often think if people say, well, I don't do singing very much, well, go watch them at the next football match. They go nuts. So, I mean, we sing what we believe. And people may not like it, and people may disagree, and people may say it's rubbish, but they will not ignore it if we believe what we say we believe. And there'll be something different. There'll be something different. There'll be a heartbeat that is for God. So we have a purpose. Together we have a purpose, my friends. We are kings. We are priests. We are different. We are redeemed. We are his. We are his. And God says, you've seen it. Therefore, live it. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the instruction in your word. So send us from this place to live as your redeemed people. In Jesus' name, amen.